Racial minority candidates win elections. This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. As the U.S. diversifies, political representation is not keeping pace. But that doesn't mean we can blame the voters. Black and Hispanic candidates, and those from other racial and ethnic minorities, do win elections when they run and generate support from their parties. In fact, it could be that apprehension about how the voters would react is actually what's holding back political representation. This week, I talked to my Michigan State University colleague, Eric Gonzalez-Yinke, about the pipeline and success of racial and ethnic minority candidates. His new paper with Ariel White, Paru Shah, and Bernard Fraga, evaluating the minority candidate penalty with a regression discontinuity approach, finds that non-white candidates that barely win primary elections over white candidates do at least as well in general elections as white candidates who barely win, if not even better. This matches a lot of prior research showing that racial minority candidates can win in either party and even in districts without large minority populations. That doesn't mean racist voters are a myth. Racial views might not be enough to overcome baseline partisanship. Or candidates might be able to rely on other voters that prefer minority candidates. Here's our conversation. So let's start with a summary of the new article. Uh, You are looking at minority candidates in state legislative elections, surprisingly uh, finding that they just do just as well. So what are the big findings? How did you reach that conclusion? And what should we take away from it? Yeah, um, thanks for having me on. Um, we're interested in a really basic question. Why do our elected legislative bodies, whether local, state, or federal, often not look like the populations they represent? So that's the kind of general question everybody in this area is working on. Um, There's a lot of ways to try and help answer this question. Um, We're going to get into some of them, I think, in this conversation. But in this paper, we try to provide one part of that answer that we've been working on for more than a decade. Uh, We wanted to know what is the general election effect of nominating a candidate of color after a close primary elections involving a white candidate? Um, and we focus on state legislative districts to answer this question because there's thousands and thousands of candidates who run um, every two years and, and, and in fact every year um, for state legislative office compared to the hundreds who run for Congress every two years. So we get to compare many more districts and candidates in political context than Congress. So the focus on state legislative districts is important because the states vary, of course, in their institutions, but also just because for on an empirical side uh, for leverage. Um, so we not only have more candidates of color in our data, but we have more variation in their electoral context, which gives us leverage on the kinds of rare event that is a contested election with a white candidate and candidate of color in a primary. Um, and so in this paper, we use a technique, uh, regression discontinuity design, that has not been used before to look at racial and ethnic descriptive representation. And it provides some of the strongest evidence to date that we need to shift our thinking about the viability of racial and ethnic minority candidates in partisan elections in the US context. Um, We find that candidates of color are not less likely to win compared to white candidates, all else equal. Um, And that finding on its own is pretty remarkable given the lengths we go to make this test as close to as fair as possible as we can with non-experimental data. And what's more, and probably more fascinating is that we find some evidence that um, candidates of color in our data set were a little more likely to win than their white counterparts. Um, and so understanding why that might be the case of trying to explain that result is, is a really interesting um, and it's important and fits in with some newer work that we can talk about. Um, and then finally, I guess I hope the takeaways for non-political scientists, and by that I mean party operatives, 
funders, voters who are thinking strategically about funding candidates and ambitious candidates themselves. Um, if you're a candidate of color or woman of color, um, don't buy into the idea that you can't win. You should run. Uh, don't listen to party operatives, Republican or Democrat, who tell you that um, racially prejudiced or racist voters won't support you. Uh, you should run. You can win. Um, your journey is going to be a little different. It might be very different and more difficult um, than others, but you are as likely to win or lose as other people in your party. So uh, talk about how your paper differs uh, from just uh, looking at uh, all the minority candidates and all the white uh, candidates and looking at who does better in general elections um, and give us kind of the, um, I guess, the intuition for why this regression discontinuity case uh, might help us uh, get to some causal inferences. So, yeah, I, I want to be really careful because because in talking about this, you know, you can say the wrong you can you can say the wrong thing about the method that we're using and, and describe it incorrectly. So I'm going to give you the, the wrong way to think about this, like technically incorrect way. But I think for the lay person, this is probably the easiest way to think about this. So we we look at um, contested primaries with a white candidate and then a racial ethnic minority candidate in, in the primary. Um, and then we look for those races. So we include all of those competitive uh, primaries and then the general election uh, contests that, that come after those primaries in the data set for 2018 and 2020. Um, but as those races, those primary races get closer and closer, you get to something that, um, and here's where I'm going to describe it incorrectly technically, but you get to something that looks like a coin flip. Um, my co-authors are going to um, get really mad at me. So it's not that, right? So, you know, I just want to make sure that, that people understand. It's not it's not like an experimental random um, treatment effect, but it is something in observational work where you can, you can say in those races where it's really close, where either a minority candidate or a white candidate just barely wins by a razor thin margin, you get to a space where you can, you can try and you, you've, you've hopefully averaged out um, any of the kind of unknown things that we tend to try and control for in these elections. And so in, in many ways with observational data, this is kind of the, the toughest test to pass um, for, for our results. Now, thankfully this matches a lot of the research that we've been working on for the last 10 years, but um, the regression discontinuity design gives just another type of evidence and, and much stronger evidence that um, what we're finding is um, consistent with past work that we've done. And so talk a little about that. So if we just looked at all minority candidates and all white candidates, um, you know, would they be as equally likely to win uh, general elections? Uh, would they do as well in terms of uh, vote share? Um, and, you know, how, do the, how does the subset that you're now taking a look at uh, with these contested primaries differ from that, that broader pool? Sure. Um, so we, we've looked at all of these races um, at the state legislative level in our in our past work and so we we really have and, and for those who don't know there's there's um roughly about 14 15,000 people who run for office uh at the state legislative level every two years in these data sets and so we've used some of those large full data sets to ask these questions in the past and try and answer them and we use the traditional kind of methods of controlling for incumbency controlling for contested general election races controlling for district population and partisanship um, and in doing so, you're trying to find out, okay, so how, how, you know, let's compare apples to apples here. 
Um, let's compare how um, racial and ethnic minority candidates do and compare to white candidates. And let's control for all these things that might differ across those contexts. But of course, in social science research, we can't. And, and so what we found in those is, is the same thing that we found here, that we really find no disadvantage to parties nominating um, candidates of color, racial, ethnic minority candidates, black candidates, Latinx candidates in these um, state legislative races. We just, um, we, we've hit it with, with almost everything we could think of in past research, past published research. Um, but what we, we were never able to do is, is to get the amount of leverage that we get in this paper where we, we really focus on these cases where it's incredibly close in the primary and somebody barely wins, somebody barely loses, and we compare those those barely winning white candidates to those barely winning um, racial and ethnic minority candidates. And and the idea is that uh, again, I'm, I'm giving the layperson's kind of understanding of this, but the idea is, you know, if, if if for an act of God or rain or something, the other candidate may have won, right? A few a few more voters turn out, and, and the other candidate may have won. And so, um, we're we're taking those candidates then and seeing how they do. And so, so the real question is, do you know, are parties penalized for nominating candidates of color in the general election? Um, and, and again, we find results that are very consistent with our past work, but that's not the case. So the, if you just looked at all the candidates, you would find minority candidates would win at high, at just as high levels. If you looked at them and you tried to do all these observational controls, uh, versus this method, you're really getting a similar answer. That's right. That's right. So that kind of opens the question as as to why. Um, we certainly know that there are some uh, prejudiced voters uh, and that uh, racial prejudices and other racial attitudes um, can impact uh, vote choices. Uh, so how is it that that doesn't result um, in an aggregate uh, in a minority candidate disadvantage? Yeah, so this is this is really the the um, super interesting part of it for for me and I, I think for my co-authors as well is like what explains this, right? Because as you say, we do know that um, there are a lot of um, racially bigoted um, voters out there, whether they they have some kind of racial prejudice or whether they're they're racist, they they kind of want policies to um, be differentiated by race. Um, they have they they think there's biological differences between um, uh, people of different ethnicities and different races, so so we know that that's true and we have a lot of evidence for that and that's not you know we're not um, we we're not saying that that's not true, um, and we have experimental evidence that shows that it's exactly these kind of voters who are more likely to say they aren't going to support a candidate of color or um, in the gender literature um, a woman candidate if they have sexist views. Um, and so we have this kind of survey evidence suggesting that there's racial bias in the, in the voting public, particularly for white voters. And they, we have this experimental evidence that suggests that even when given the choice between different kinds of candidates, that these voters will actually express their, their racial bigotry in a, in a way that, that disadvantages uh, minority candidates. And then we have this long literature of observational work looking at office holders finding that um, Minority candidates were very rare in white districts, right? And so, and that evidence was used in court cases to decide redistricting um, fights in the past. It is um, used, um, the social science was used in this in the Supreme Court in a number of cases to demonstrate um, the need for, for certain type of districting regimes. Um, and so, 
so we we have these kind of this this what I call the three-legged stool of the survey evidence, the experimental evidence, and the observational evidence, and and we're taking on the observational work, and I can explain how we do that. Um, but the other two legs of the stool have also kind of taken some hits recently in the last ten years. Um, the experimental work, of course, and and this kind of taps into my love of philosophy of science, of science, that. Um, the experimental work, of course, is done in a vacuum, right? It's it's necessarily controlling, um, um, it, not controlling for kind of external factors. And so it has external validity issues associated with it. So what might work in a lab um, may not work in the real world of a, of a campaign where voters have more information about the candidates. It can substitute other information about the candidates for their racial biases. Um, the survey work, and this is... For me, one of the most interesting things that's come of this um, of this work, the survey work showing that voters are using their um, their racial biases to make choices has there's been some pushback. It's not that that those racial bigots or, or racists. I'm using different terminologies, and they're measured a little bit differently. But but, but generally speaking, we're talking about the same um, general population that a lot of those findings are giving the agency to to racists or bigots. Um, but on the other side of these measures of, of racial bias or racial prejudice are these people who are you know considered not racist or or don't have racial biases. And what recent research, um, there's this great paper by Agajanian um, et al. and I think it's the political science quarterly uh, came out in February, but they show that there's on the other side of this curve, there's these people who actually are fairly racially liberal that prefer um, candidates. And these are white voters who prefer candidates of color um, in some instances, all else equal. And it's interesting how those individuals might balance each other out in certain um, in certain circumstances in the voting public. There's also work by Jen Chudy and uh, Spencer Piston and others um, showing that they look at um, racial sympathizers. These are people who, who for a variety of reasons, um, also prefer candidates of color. And then there's also work by Chris Stout um, showing that, you know, some candidates in certain situations can actually um, push their identity forward and voters will really respond to that. White voters will respond to that and, um, and favor that. And so it's this kind of favoring that might be accounting or, or might um, make up some of that gap for those voters who might disfavor. There's also other reasons. Um, the parties have certainly polarized along racial, um, uh, the racial dimension um, over the last 50 years, but but certainly in the last, it's accelerated over the last 10, 15 years. And because of that, a lot of people who would use their, their racial biases have found, or, or people who are say racially liberal have found the party that matches those preferences. And so they can then vote, um, vote their party instead of their biases. Um, and then for the most part in partisan elections, it really comes down to, um, um, and this is one of the benefits, I think, I shouldn't say benefits, but one of the kind of potential positive outcomes of polarization is because the parties have become so polarized, <clears throat> people really do care about what somebody stands for rather than who they are, right? If they're going to um, lead the team, if they're going to be the standard bearer for their team, people will override some of their their racial biases and support that Republican or Democrat, even if they may be they may have some prejudice against them. 
Um, and so in a lot of those experiments in the past, at least, you, you would kind of leave out party because what would happen is you add party, um, it would actually dominate the findings because right? people then would revert to their partisan um, cues. So we think that, that, or I think that a lot of these things might be contributing to some of the findings that we have here. So you are comparing uh, racial minority, racial ethnic minority candidates to white candidates, but I imagine because of the population of candidates, that is mostly meaning uh, black and Hispanic candidates and mostly meaning Democratic candidates. Um, so what can we say about kind of variation? Um, do these findings extend to a Asian American and Native American candidates uh, to the extent to uh, Republican uh, non-white candidates? Yeah, so... That's a great question, and I, I think for for some of these, the answer is we we need to we need to figure that out. Um, so we're not able to disentangle the first part of that in this paper because, as you say, most of these candidates um, are um, black or Latino or Latina, and so it's really rare to find these kind of truly competitive situations in the first place, and to find it with groups who are geographically isolated in certain states. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of uh, are rare events in some of these models. And that's part of the reason why we, we, we think, you know, what the problem is here, right? There's a lack of, of support and um, uh, a lack of recruitment of candidates from some of these different groups. And, and we think that if the parties would do a better job of, of increasing their recruitment efforts, um, you would actually get more representation from some of these groups. So we're not able to disentangle that here, but there there is other work um, that but we do find that's pretty common across the groups that we do have in here, and we don't find any differences um, in this paper and in our other papers where we do have more of those uh, candidates, uh, Asian American candidates, Native American candidates. We don't find any differences in those uh, larger papers. Um, Christian and similarly Jody, for party, so the the minority Republicans also do just as well. That is true. We don't find any differences across party in this paper. Um, but as you say, the, the Democratic Party has done historically a, um, a better job of recruiting and supporting candidates of color and women candidates. And so that's where most of the variation is here. Um, but we don't find any differences across the parties in this paper and, and not in our other papers either. Um, that's not to say there aren't differences. And, and so where we do see the differences and other research has shown is that it's differences in recruitment and support. And there's a lot of really good work being done in that area. Um, I was going to say, Christian Jogi Phillips and others have work looking at the intersection of race and gender and immigrant background. And I think that kind of work is really important as we try to dig down and see um, how generalizable these findings are across all type of groups. So as you say, uh, this matches uh, some of the findings uh, from the gender literature uh, where uh, people find that women candidates do just as well in general elections. Um, one of the pushbacks to that has been uh, that year that we're observing uh, the women candidates who are best positioned uh, to counteract um, prejudices. Um, and so that could be true of your candidates uh, as well, that these are folks that are well positioned to win support from white voters um, and they, they still face prejudices. Maybe they're seen as more liberal. Maybe they're seen as more focused on uh, racial minority voter concerns. Um, so give us a little bit of, I guess, your reaction to that overall. And then maybe if you have some stories of these particular candidates, are, are there ones that really do seem to just be good at appealing uh, to white voters? Or is this, um, is this something where just if we saw more candidates running, no matter what their strategy, they would have the same outcome? 
Yeah, and I just I want to I, I just want to make sure that you know the context of all of this, and I'll just the easiest way to say this is is you know this really is these candidates are running under the party labels, and so they're running as as standard bearers for their party, and that's really what's dominating their presentation to voters in in voters' minds, um, and so that's really kind of the you know, the, the, the big thing driving, I think, these findings and driving um, how voters are thinking about their, their candidates as the campaign goes on. Um, is, this, is this person going to help defeat, you know, the other party? And is this person going to represent the partisan uh, views that I have? Um, but that is to say also that, you know, all candidates have to act strategically. So, so you're suggesting, right, there's some kind of strategic um, um, ambition here and and that's true, uh, but it's also true for all candidates, right? Um, most successful candidates are strategic about the races that they're going to pick. Um, now here we have another dimension about the the racial dimension about is this is this the right district for me to run in? Um, and there is a lot of evidence that racial and ethnic minority candidates and women candidates have to alter their messages and often appearance to push back against these prejudices, particularly for many white voters and and, and men uh, voters. Um, so, for example, you have somebody like Raphael Warnock uh, presenting himself with puppies in his campaign ads um, to perhaps counter some people's perceptions of him as radical, right? Um, you have Joni Ernst castrating hogs in her ads famously to demonstrate what might be perceived as masculine traits, which research has shown is needed by many women candidates, particularly in the GOP. Um, and some of my early work uh, looked at ways in which Latino candidates in Colorado had to deracialize their campaigns to win white support. And so, yes, I think, you know, that all that research is helpful in understanding how we might get results like the ones that we find. Um, and it's not that all of these candidates are similar and have to do the same amount of work to win election. Um, it's, it's that this, this, this work uh, to reassure prejudiced voters can work and it can lead to success. Um, but as I said, there's, there's more to this story now, right? And, and the work that I talked about earlier from Chris Stout, Jen Chudy, uh, Michael Tesler, and many others, show us that in some areas, um, their preferences for um, candidates as they are, right? Um, that there's many white voters who, who actually would prefer to, to take candidates as they are, whether they're women candidates, racial ethnic minority candidates, and that um, there's, a, there's an advantage to, um, to, to being authentic to themselves and, and their identities. And so, you know, there are races and there are um, um, elections where candidates have to strategically appeal to voters. Um, but again, if you think about what those areas are, we're talking about these areas where you have to do this and have to not. There's going to be Democratic areas, right, um, largely. Um, and in Republican areas, there, the candidates have to appeal to Republican voters. Um, and so to the extent that they have to strategically sell those messages in those partisan races, and again, in this very polarized time period that we're in, um, that's what's going to kind of override a lot of people's personal prejudices in these races. So one explanation that I know you've looked at a lot for um, why we wouldn't get um, as many minority candidates, given that they would do well in a general election, is that they don't get uh, support from party officials or current, current office holders. Uh, as much. Um, how much can we say, I know we're traveling outside of this paper specifically, but I know you're, you're an expert on this as well. <laughs> how much can we, can we say that um, that 
uh, is is sort of about skepticism of general election voters, where if if they were really convinced by this this paper, they would um, move forward. Versus this, there are just kind of other dynamics in the minority candidate pop- pipeline that that lead to lack of party uh, and current officeholder support. I think I think it's it's huge. I think that's um, it for me speaking for myself. Um, I think that that is the um, probably the number one um, uh, gap in the pipeline. Um, and you could, you know, there could be a variety of reasons for this. It could be that these um, uh, gatekeepers, party operatives, funders um, have their own prejudices, right? And they, they literally think, well, I, I just don't want to support um, uh, these kind of candidates. Um, it could be that they're being strategically prejudiced, right? That they don't think that these kind of, and there's a really great book on this small power by Dave Doherty. Um, I think it's Doherty, Dowling and Miller, um, where they actually, they run experiments on these party, these county party chairs. And they find that, that in fact, that's, that's right. That these county party chairs are being strategically prejudiced at times and um, suggesting that we don't think you can win in this area and therefore we can't really support you and we're not going to go looking for candidates who look like you to run in these kind of districts or these kind of cities. Um, And so it's already, as you know, an incredibly difficult decision to to drop your life and run for office. Um, It's disruptive to kind of everything that you that you've been doing. Um, So even the most ambitious individuals often choose not to run for office. And so you can imagine if you if you take that step into the pool and somebody's there to say, we're just not going to, we just don't think you're the right fit for this election or we don't think you're the right fit for this office, that um, that's pretty debilitating to your ambitions. Um, I heard, I, I have an anonymous story. This is also, you hear anecdotes all the time. And I, um, you know, there is a, a very prominent governor who was told that they could, they shouldn't bother running because, um, as a woman, they just weren't going to, they just weren't going to perform well. Um, and thankfully they decided not to take that advice. And I, I, I hope more candidates make that decision too, to not take that advice. But um, <clears throat> those are the little nudges that I think keep, keep the pipeline looking the way it has for, for as long as it has. And um, the other part of this is, um, you know, it could be that voters are strategically, right, that, that I'll support I, I don't have any problem supporting these candidates. I don't think other people in my party will, and and therefore I can't get behind um, this candidate. It's too bad, right? And they may they may really believe that. Um, and so those are the kind of um, I think those are the kind of strategic prejudice that can be overcome by by candidates winning, breaking through, seeing that that this can be done, and and voters will support. That there's this collective action problem that pops up uh, strategically. And then we have another, we have a paper on the kind of elite side of this showing that there is a coattail effect for um, higher office racial and ethnic minority candidates that when they win, um, the, if their district has crossover with state legislative districts, um, we, we tend to see more um, co-ethnic, co-racial candidates emerging in those, in those districts that have overlap. So there's this idea that, you know, when, when, when somebody breaks through at the federal level or at a higher level of office, a governorship, um, 
that other other ambitious candidates who are out there say, okay, it can be done. Or they they tap into the network of, of, of donors and party supporters that were that were tied to this higher level office holder. So I think a lot of these different um, things might be at play. And as you know, again, like it's 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 a really hard thing to do to run for office. And so any one of these could kind of tip people um, out of the, out of um, out of the pipeline. So the easy uh, sort of metric that party officials often use is just how many minority voters are there in in the district um, that could result in uh, you only seeing minority candidates, um, you know, in districts with high minority populations. Um, it, do you look at that at all? Not the compensating differential, but just that these districts where the minority candidate wins the primary uh, have, you know, a certain level of minority support. Sure. Um, and, and and that's true, right? Historically true. And that's, that's true in the present. In fact, you still see over um, large majority of um, racial and ethnic minority office holders and candidates emerging in these um, districts that have a large um, minority population in them. And in some ways, personally, you know, normatively, this is this is, I, you know, I, I really hope we can encourage more people in both parties to to start running outside of these areas. Um, because when we do look at these areas where we look at majority white districts um, in our previous work, it's not in this paper, but in previous work, um, we find the same effect. We find that um, in those cases where they do run, um, they do just as well as their white partisan counterparts. Um, and I do, again, I think that's the, you know, we, we keep coming to this question, everybody historically, whether they are party gatekeepers or whether they're candidates or voters, is looking at that relationship, that correlation between district uh, demographics and who is holding office, and they say, "Well, this this is just how it is. This is just a law," and 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 we're trying to suggest that, in fact, it's not a law. It's not true. It just happens to be that everybody is this is this kind of self fulfilling prophecy that if if this is how the world works, then this is how we're going to make it work, and um, and we show that you know that's just not true. So that would seem to have implications for a lot of voting rights issues uh, surrounding redistricting, um, where um, minority uh, representative organizations often make exactly these arguments that they uh, need to have districts uh, with large uh, racial minority populations in order to get um, racial minority representation. Uh, on the one hand, you know, your work might be might be cited for people by people who say, no, that's not really necessary. On the other hand, all this self-fulfilling prophecy that we are talking about might mean that it, it, it still turns out that way, that you need these these high um, racial minority populations to get the candidates uh, to, to match match their districts. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Um I, I think those are so again, I'll answer this in you know my own way. I'm not, I'm not speaking for my co-authors, but um, you know, I think these are different questions, and I think conflating these two things is what has in part contributed to to some of the problems um, in the past. So it is true that majority minority districting has contributed to more minority descriptive and substantive representation. And that's the other part of this. Um, I think oftentimes um, proponents of majority minority districting, 
are suggesting there's there's these there's these other effects, um, substantive representation, not just descriptive representation. You're getting different kinds of co-ethnic or co-racial representatives. And in, in previous work that I've done and others have done, show that that's true, right? You actually do get, um, <clears throat> and it's not just about who the representative is, but it's what those districts and the coalitions look like, no matter who's representing them. If there's a majority uh, black population, a majority Latino population, then they can put more pressure on whoever is representing them in office and get um, better substantive representation for that group. So, but I think, you know, we've often thought of this as some kind of trade-off. Um, um, and whether it's because of all the things that we've talked about, um, past white voter prejudice, um, elites not um, recruiting, candidates feeling like they can't win, um, networks of political insiders, and and more importantly, um, creating a powerful geographic political block that no matter you know who represents them can influence that representative. Um, you know, I just want to be clear that um, it's it's bigger and more complicated than just who is going to you know can can candidates win in white districts, and that's that smaller part of this that we're we're asking. But having said all that, if we if we focus on just who runs and who wins. Our evidence suggests that you don't necessarily need a majority or even a large influence district to elect candidates of color in these state legislative races. And again, we're talking about partisan races on uh, state legislature if they're recruited and supported to run. Um, and that's and, and I think, it, as you say, that's a big if. Right. So um, if the explanation is you actually need these these um, these influence districts in order to create the donor class, in order to create the party support, in order to put pressure on the parties themselves to encourage candidates to run, then it would be the case that that those things are needed. And I, again, I think those those majority minority districts are um, are useful in other ways besides just um, electing descriptive representatives. So. Uh, tell us a little bit more about these uh, pipeline uh, issues that I know that that we've studied. So um, we have talked about that it isn't general election voters that are um, responsible for uh, lower levels of representation. Um, and it probably has something to do with party elites, uh, current office holders, um, interest groups, um, support for racial minority candidates. Uh, it might have to do with the racial minority candidates themselves, anticipation of prejudice, maybe even primary voters, anticipation of prejudice. But there's there's probably a, a, a long tail of uh, factors that matter uh, in this process. So talk a little bit about the, the broader reasons why we might not see um, racial minority candidates uh, to match uh, racial minority population in the U.S. So it's interesting to say the long tail because I think that's that's a big part of this, right? We're we're the you know um, history is sticky, as I teach my students, um, and incumbency is is a is a strong part of this story historically, right? Um, there there just aren't as many opportunities for individuals to break through as there that you know we don't start with a clean slate every two years, and so when these opportunities do come up, it's incredibly competitive. Um, and, and, in, and in partisan competitive districts where you could actually have, um, you know, a Republican or Democrat win, um, you know, there, there, there are high stakes. And I think these party elites can really um, uh, uh, try and find candidates that they in their minds believe can, can win particular kinds of districts. And they have this kind of idea. Party operatives are also um, part of that historical inertia, right? Um, they themselves have been doing, doing this for a while. Um, so I do think there's a lot of um, 
historical stickiness. And I think that is also why we've seen a change in the last 10 years. And we've seen increased um, diversity of candidates. We've seen increased diversity in office holders. Um, in some states, we've reached parity, uh, particularly for African-American representation in some states. Uh, we don't have kind of the underrepresentation that we have in other states. Um, and, and this is a really, uh, I, I think a, a big part of this is partly what we show in this paper, but also partly because uh, um, racial minority candidates and women candidates themselves figured out a way, either through the party or outside of the party with these kind of outside training organizations, um, party networks that kind of are, are um, secondary to the party to um, Stacey Abrams is a really great example of this. But candidates who, who found ways to kind of work around these other gatekeepers and find ways to get on the ballot, and they've been successful. Um, I think the kind of nationalization of our politics has helped. I think polarization has helped. Um, and I also think that um, social media, like again, social media campaign, we can go directly to vote keepers. We see uh, vote, uh, voters, we see gatekeepers in every industry kind of fall to the wayside with the rise of social media. And it's, it's not surprising that party gatekeepers um, are also being kind of um, shunned if um, a candidate is ambitious enough and has and, and feels that they can they can compete. I think AOC is a, is a great example of this um, when she wins her first race. And we have lots of examples of similar candidates across the country. So give us a little bit about the state of representation. I know for women, it's just an easier baseline because we know that women are 50% or near 50% of most districts and, and states. And we can see that they're not 50% of, of representatives, um, but that they're increasing in their representation. And there are some states where there are uh, a majority of representatives in, in some chambers. Um, do, does the racial minority representation story look look similar? Um. It does in some states. And, and again, yeah, it varies. Right. So you and, and this does kind of fit the uh, gender story as well, where you have uh, for women states like um, Colorado and New Mexico, where you have parity or near parity. Um, and so you do have some state legislatures um, for racial and ethnic minority candidates where you do have parity, um, uh, particularly for, for black representation. Um, and that this translates into real um, uh, policy wins, right? These are not just kind of um, symbolic representatives, symbolic descriptor representatives. We see uh, Beth Rangold has research on this and what it translates into um, for uh, for women and for Black women. Um, so, so minority representation matters um, both in addition to party representation and separately in its own dimension, but. Um, it matters to the issues that the parties are focusing on and what kind of stances they're taking. So um, we have seen a growth in the number of candidates from uh, uh, different groups who are running, and we have seen continued success. We have a paper uh, um, uh, from a couple of years ago showing that you, we have seen a rise in the number of um, candidates of color and women of color running in state legislatures. And over time, and this is in both parties, um, so I, I should say that, you know, the, the Democrats are doing um, and have historically done um, more to recruit and support women and women of color and candidates of color um, for office. And so, you know, Democratic, the, the Democratic um, office holder and candidate pool looks incredibly diverse and, and looks pretty close to what we see in the United States um, overall. Um, but the Republicans are doing um, more recently doing a little bit more to um, diversify their candidate recruitment practices 
and support. And we see that here in Michigan and we see that across the country as well. So let's uh, try to square your findings uh, with what's happening in presidential elections. Many people will see uh, uh, it through that lens. Um, uh, there is a case that that maybe some of the research on uh, Obama uh, supports uh, your your story. Um, there are some findings that racial prejudice hurt uh, Obama. There there are some others that say that there were some voters that um, were were more inclined uh, to to support Obama. So maybe there was some compensation um, uh, from kind of the racial left um, in, in those elections. On the other hand, um, we see a lot of consternation about uh, nominating uh, women and minority candidates for the Democratic um, presidential nomination. Um, many people credit that consternation in part uh, for Joe Biden's um, uh, uh, win uh, last time. So I guess are, are people's um, inclinations right uh, about um, what happened under Obama and what's happening at the presidential level? Um, and how much should we draw from your findings uh, to, to connect it to those? Yeah, so um, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about. <laughs> um, and it's a bit of a controversial area, so I'm going to be careful. But, um, you know, it, it's it's so first, it's it's possible that things are different at, um, for, for executives, say for governors, um, for presidents um, and and also for federal elections. Um, then it is obviously we're working, looking at state legislative elections. They're not as salient. Voters don't have as much information about the candidates. Although they, again, the social media has really made um, candidate campaigning a lot more personal and, and, and voters can get more information than they had in the past. Um, but the Obama case is, is such a good example of, of, I think, this whole debate. Because as you say, there's, you know, there was a lot of research that came out after his election suggesting that if not for the economy tanking, he would not have won. Right? That he he really got lucky um, that the economy tanked right. Before, I think it's a month before the election. Um, but people forget how much racism he faced in his campaign, and I think that's it's it's, it's kind of striking because we're all old enough to have lived through it. Um, you know, there was the Reverend Wright inferences um, to the anti-Muslim racism he faced, to his name being used as a weapon. Um, people remember the quote unquote, terrorist fist bump accusations. Um, so there's like two, two, you know, very big part of the campaign was to try and paint him and racialize him as we think about it in the literature. Um, and he had to work harder than other white Democrats to win over racist voters in his own party, in the Democratic Party, and then in the general election. Um, and people say, well, he just had to be a better candidate than, you know, a typical Democratic candidate. Um, Again, in his, I think it's such a great lesson. Like he beat Hillary Clinton, who was an incredibly strong primary opponent, um, and um, and John Edwards. Uh, people forget John Edwards was also a really strong primary candidate opponent in that race as well. Um, so then say, well, he was just a really great candidate, and that's why he was able to do this, right? So this fits the story of well, you you the only candidates who are able to pull this off are these kind of super talented candidates like Obama. But in the way that political science measures experience or viability or candidate quality, he was, you know, again, this is before an election, before we see these things, whether it's incumbency or party support or money or previous held office, he was one of the most inexperienced major party presidential candidates in decades. Um, but after he wins, right, I think there's this story that, well, he must have won because he's just this generational candidate. Um, 
but so so what we do is tell these we, we we try and say okay well then let's look at other let's look at other candidates i could talk about some of that but what what new research has, has found and again i want to kind of go back to that um Agajanian et al paper that show that he really did um to the extent that he faced and and was punished by racially um uh, conservative or racist uh, voters many of those voters were not going to support a democratic candidate anyway Many of those voters in his own party went ahead and pulled the lever for him. Um, and um, there were other voters who really wanted him to win because he would be the first black candidate um, in U.S. history. They, they wanted to support. They, they favored him more than they favored um, Hillary Clinton or John Edwards or a John Kerry type um, and so in those same studies, and this is what I find so interesting, in those very same studies showing that he was punished by, um, by bigots, you can look at the evidence in those studies and, and find the other side of that, right? That there actually, there's support um, from what we would call racial liberals or racial sympathizers who really liked him and liked him more than the other candidates and gave him extra support. So, um, so, you know, what we do with these studies is we say, well, we want to go beyond these kind of anecdotal cases. So even though I think um, this fits, his story fits well with, with our story. Oh, and the other thing I should point out is, you know, um, political scientists before each presidential elections publish their um, expectations about, you know, how the, how the presidential election is going to turn out. And if you go back to that 2008 October issue where um, the political scientists publish their, their models before the election, they nailed that election. Like they got it almost exactly right in terms of the candidates' um, level support, McCain and Obama. And these are models that that are that are that are done well before the economy crashes. This is, these are done using totally different inputs than um, polling and and um, other things like that. And so I, I just find it interesting that he, you know, he he did as well as political scientists thought he would do, right? Um, if you average those those studies out, so. Um, and then if you look at other candidates, I mean, you don't have to just look at Obama. You can look at, um, a Republican like, like Tim Scott from South Carolina, um, Marco Rubio, of course, in, in Florida, uh, Ted Cruz in Texas. Again, um, individuals who, yes, racial, ethnic, uh, minority candidates, but they're, they're running as Republicans in Texas. They're running as Republicans in South Carolina. Uh, they're running as Democrats in Illinois and in Michigan. And, and if they're running for the right party label, these, uh, many of these voters are going to kind of override their, um, their biases. So how much has your group actually tried to reach out to uh, candidates and uh, recruitment uh, organizations and, and parties? Uh, and and what, do you, what reactions do you get? Do they have the same objections uh, to your findings as uh, social scientists do? Or do they have a, another series of, of explanations or uh, resistance? Uh, no, you know, to the extent that I've talked to um, organizations that try and um, recruit, fund, and train um, candidates of color and women and women of color to run for office. Um, that's where a lot of these anecdotes come from, where they say, yep, that's what we heard. <laughs> this is what we heard from funders. This is what we heard from party gatekeepers. And, um, you know, we, we, it, it, is, it is if we're telling their story and we are, you know, we are telling that story. Um, 
And I think there's a, a little bit of um, relief that that story is getting told um, that, and of course, you know, I'm talking to people who want to, to run for office and want to win office. And so this matches really this kind of um, more optimistic take on, on viability and, and their chances for their ambitions. But um, it, it does really fit with what a lot of these individuals um, have experienced anecdotally, which I think is, is, um, is interesting, you know, and I, and we, we talked about, candidates like Kimberly, uh, Kimberly Edwards in Michigan, and maybe the listeners don't know her story, but she came out of nowhere with about $1,000 in campaign funds, no endorsements, and she defeated um, her Democratic primary opponent, Richard Steenland, last August, last year. She just came out of nowhere. Um, African-American woman in a majority white district, mother for no experience, and she just said, I'm going to run. And she won by 300 votes in the primary, but, um, and she went on to win in the general election, 70% of the votes in her district. Um, and, you know, some, some might say she's an exception or an outlier and we'd say, yeah, she is the exception, meaning um, we need more individuals like that to run and take the dive in and say, I'm just gonna do it. Um, the, the, the rarity is not the win. The rarity is that we don't see as many of these candidates showing up to, the, showing up to run for office as we would like. Um, another candidate here in Michigan, uh, John James, right? He ran ahead of Trump in Michigan in 2020 when he ran for Senate. He lost, but he ran ahead of Trump in the state. And then in 2022, he defeated Carl Malinga by fewer than 2,000 votes in a district that's 88% white. Um, he's a, um, a GOP candidate, African-American uh, GOP candidate. So again, this is a GOP district or sorry, there's a competitive district that's 80% white district and you know he, he wins, he runs. And he had lost two previous elections, two big statewide elections and could have given up and said, you know, that's it. Um, so, so, you know, when we talk to people, we, we, we have these anecdotes and we, we hear from people that this matches the experiences that they've had in trying to convince party operatives and gatekeepers to support them in their paths to office. So as you mentioned, you find not only that they're equally likely to win, but actually slightly more likely uh, to win. Um, so I want to talk about how seriously we should take that that finding and if there might be a, um, a chance to see that increase. Um, of course, we do have within the Democratic Party, um, you know, increasing views of the kinds that uh, have were shown to be for more support for Obama in 2008, uh, more racially liberal attitudes over time. You could even see a story in the Republican Party uh, where where they say, you know, we want to demonstrate that we're not the racist party, uh, that that we're actually the party that that you know should represent uh, minority voters, um, and seeing you know a potential advantage there going forward, uh, growing. So I guess what's the chance that um, there is a real advantage, um, and that that advantage will will grow? So I, I don't want to over. Um... I don't want to over rely on, on the, the results of this one paper for that. Um, you know, I'm much more comfortable relying on the, the null finding because it matches all of our previous work and, and a lot of work that our people are doing. So that's where we'll hang our hats. But I do find it um, enticing and interesting and, and um, uh, intriguing to hopefully, you know, produce more work going forward to take a look at this. Um, so I can speculate a little bit that I, I, I do think that um, 
you know, there is a large segment of the population. I think you you put it perfectly, right? I think for both parties, there are real incentives for voters to demonstrate um, their um, racially liberal or, or, or racial bona fides, right? Like that 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 this represents that they are um, uh, not prejudiced, not bigoted, um, not sexist, and that they 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 want to. Um, express those values in their votes. Um, we certainly see this in um, so outside of the electoral context. We certainly see the the, the GOP um, diversifying again. I you know here in Michigan, um, the new GOP state chairs, African American woman. Um, so we see that the parties are, are both trying to to do this and promote um, different kinds of candidates than they have in the past, and and so I think that's really hopeful. Um, and, and again, we, we do see a growth in the um, the diversity of demographics of candidates running in these state legislative races, and we know that that will eventually lead to more diversity in Congress and the federal level and, and and executive levels because that's where a lot of these candidates cut their teeth and officeholders cut their teeth is in state legislatures. Um, Gretchen Whitmer, of course, um, serving in the Michigan state legislature for, for years before moving um, up. And, 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 and it's a very kind of normal path. I think it's something like two thirds of house members were state legislative officeholders at one point or another. And so, so as we see um, more of these lower level offices being held by a more diverse um, um, array of, of candidates that we have historically not seen. I do have some hope that that will translate into um, kind of more national um, changes. So your chance to pitch what you're working on next or anything we didn't get to that you wanted to include? Uh, well, we're working on a book that will um, put all of this work that we've been doing over the last decade. And this is me and Parusha and uh, Bernard Fraga, and I should say, and it's probably um, that that on this paper, it's it's Bernard Paru, myself, and Ariel White at MIT, um, who worked on this paper together. But um, Paru and Bernard and I are working on a book that we're gonna we're gonna look at. You know, the, the last 10, 15 years has been a um, has, has just been a fascinating time to be studying this um, at the state legislative level, at the local level. Um, and so we're going to we're going to try and put that these changes, this kind of growth in uh, the diversity of our legislatures into context, not from not just from an officeholder standpoint. And I think that's that's what we're, that's the idea that we're trying to push, but that you actually have to look at the candidates who are running. You have to look at the people who run and lose in order to really understand that the, the choices that the voters are given before you make some inferences about voters and their choices. Um, so so that's that's the big project for the next year or so. Um, we have grad students who are working on trying to get into the, the uh, secret world of, of, you know, how ambition turns into opportunity for these candidates. So um, Kesia Dickinson is working on black women candidates. Uh, Jamil Scott is, is working on a book looking at um, the networks that um, candidates use and black women candidates use to, um, to turn their ambitions into opportunities. Um, there's a lot of really exciting work going on right now. Jessica Priest, um, uh, Dan Butler, Kira Sembamatsu, Danielle Lemmy, and Nadia Brown, they're all doing really great work to, to kind of open up this box um, and see 
how this is actually working. How's, how do people, how are people identified as good candidates? Um, where do they get trained uh, to, to run for office? How are they getting their information? How do they get tied into donor networks? Um, a lot of that has been behind closed doors historically. And so I think there's just some really cool work being done right now um, trying to get at those questions. Now, the, I guess the last thing I, you know, I just will maybe close something unsaid is, um, you know, one interpretation of this work, and I think this is the wrong one, but one interpretation of this work is that, you know, we're in some kind of post-racial um, um, state of politics and American politics. And, and I, I think that's not right. Um, now, I might be wrong. I, I, I don't think that's correct. Um, and so we sometimes get pushback when we present this work that somehow we're, we're suggesting racial prejudice isn't important in our elections or that it means that we're post-racial. And I think to work really hard to refute this. So, so I want to be clear, like, you know, personally, I've devoted my entire career to studying um, uh, racism and, and bigotry in our politics and racial and ethnic politics. And so, so I believe it's, it's one of the fundamental political cleavages in our society. And it's because the parties have increasingly polarized on this issue over the last 50, 60 years, that beliefs about this cleavage have come to define who belongs on which partisan team, right? And explains why, who is giving this message, whether it's Ted Cruz, who's the son of a Cuban political asylum seeker and promotes conservative racial politics, or Kamala Harris, who's the daughter of Indian and Jamaican immigrants, who's promoting more liberal racial politics, right? It's, 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 what the message is, the willingness to be in line with the party message on race overrides one's demographic identity to many voters. And that's much more interesting of a conclusion to this evidence because it opens up so many more questions than just saying, oh, well, we're all done here, right? Um, I think um, racial politics has in many ways come to define the parties, which makes it more salient as a political phenomenon, not less. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes you should check out next. They're all linked on our website. Multiracial Electoral Coalitions for Minority Candidates. Did Americans' Racial Attitudes Elect Trump? The Roots of the Party's Racial Switch. How Politics Changes Our Racial Views and Identities. And When Partisanship Forms Our Identity. Thanks to Eric Gonzalez-Yinke for joining me. Please check out Evaluating the Minority Candidate Penalty with a Regression Discontinuity Approach, and then listen in next time.